The Labor Department is nearly out with a final rule to update how the government determines wages it will allow in federal construction contracts and in federally assisted construction. The new rule is 812 pages long. It's not sitting well with the construction industry. Here with one reaction from the trade group Associated General Contractors of America, Claiborne Guy. Mr. Guy, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And you've looked at this rule. I guess it takes a long time to digest 812 pages of rulemaking. But this basically is to update how wages are determined under the Davis-Bacon Act dating back to the 1930s. Correct. This uh, prevailing wages, you know, you have to provide them on federal construction contracts or federally assisted construction projects. And they have not, this is the most comprehensive update that they've done since the 80s. And the main crux of it is updating how they determine what is truly called a prevailing or prevailing wage rate. Previously, they went by a 50% threshold to where they'd gather data on wage rates in certain areas. And then if it crossed the 50% threshold, that was considered prevailing. Now they've lowered it to actually, even though this is an update, they're going back to pre-1983 rule to where the threshold was 30%. Interesting. So they're going to the pre-Reagan era, you might say. Correct. Before we get to some of the details, who determines the wage? Is it the contractors in bidding or is it the government that does the determination and tells you what they are? and then you bid on a contract. How does that all work in practice? The Department of Labor goes out and does a voluntary survey process to where they try to get construction contractors to submit what they pay in counties, certain counties. It's typically county by county. And then what they do is they take that back, figures it crosses the threshold to what is prevailing, and then they publish it. And so, again, county by county to where the work done is the wage rates are set by the DOL. And then the procurement agencies are supposed to have those in the bid documents and actually the final contracts as well. So the contractors, one, can set the proper bids with the assumed labor costs and then in the end pay the proper wages. So you need that information to make the bid and that in theory puts everybody on the same footing then that would bid in terms of what they're going to pay labor for that contract. Yes, in theory, but uh, many times those wage rates are severely out of date as well as incorrect or missing. So uh, there's still a lot of ambiguity out there when uh, contractors are going through the bidding process. And what's the practical effect of 30% of the wages being paid in an area versus 50%? Because, I mean, I'll just put it out there, this administration is trying to favor union labor in word and deed pretty much every time they mention something. And so is this to make sure that union construction wages get followed in more places than they do now, do you think? Yes. In, in essence, it is going to make it easier for them to use collective bargaining agreement rates to set the wage rates because, again, it's a voluntary survey process, but the unions are more organized. And so they have all their wage rates right there in the CBA. They can submit the CBA, and therefore it's easy for the DOL to just pick those rates. And if that's the situation, then what can contractors compete on if everyone's paying the same wages and it takes the same amount of labor to erect a steel structure that's 12 stories by a block or something, whatever. How do you compete? What other cost elements can you compete on? Correct. Uh, it's difficult to compete when you can't really reduce material prices. So uh, also to add on top of it, we've got a historic labor kind of crisis right now. So it's hard to even pay those rates currently. Just to find the people, in other words. Mm -hmm, correct. 
And, you know, I look at the cranes all over the Washington, D.C. area and in northern Virginia. I imagine there's lots of cranes. In fact, sometimes in New York, they topple over. What is construction labor per hour generally now in high cost areas where there is a high concentration of union labor? It's extremely high. I'd have to go back to the BLS data that has it out there, but you know, I think like the average is way above you know minimum wage rates, et cetera, uh, and even CBAs. There's a crisis, a workforce crisis. Contractors can't keep up; they can't keep, get people into the industry, so they're just the only way they can attack it is with higher wage rates. Right, and it is difficult work outside manual strength required. I mean, it's not exactly office work. No, you got to incentivize them to do that kind of work. Sure. We're speaking with Claiborne Guy. He is Director of Employment Policy and Practices at the Associated General Contractors of America. And tell us about the rulemaking. Did you weigh in on it? Did you comment and so forth? And what's the process next? Because it hasn't officially been published. As you mentioned, it's a massive rule. Uh, it's uh, you know close to 800 pages. Uh, it's the most comprehensive update that the DOL has done in 40 years. They went out with a proposal first. Actually, they went out for industry and, and public input prior the proposed rulemaking, which we participated heavily in. We worked with Wage and Hour uh, to submit uh, suggestions. And then when the proposed rule came out, we submitted a, a extensive comment letter with our uh, thoughts, our very uh, you know deep thoughts on what should be in Davis-Bacon reform, because we've been looking at this for decades now. They came out with the final rule. It was not officially published, so that's when it becomes real. Instead, the DOL released the rule, and then the vice president made the announcement last week about it, and they plan to publish it on the 23rd. Once that is published, it will have a 60-day effective rate. Uh, so that means that I think it's October 23rd is when contractors will have to be fully up to speed and ready to comply with all the new changes and wrinkles in it, as well as procurement agencies that are going to need to be ready to uh, put this into contracts and kind of help guide contractors along, especially during the bidding process and when the projects go into effect. Again, this is just for new contracts, new projects, new or renewed projects. But uh, again, that 60-day date is looming. And in the industry, do the large contractors, the national contractors, the names you see on all these cranes, you see the same names in city after city, do they tend to be more unionized than small contractors or, say, disadvantaged minority-owned contractors? Yes, because they do projects all over the country. So if you think about it, they do work in union and non-union areas. They have the uh, resources to do that. Right. So they could be union in one city, but if they're doing something out in the hinterlands, say building a data center or something, that could be non-union construction labor. Yes. And the small companies, do they tend to be unionized by location or do they tend to just not be as unionized in general as the large guys? I'd say they tend to be, again, location by location. But yes, I'd say they tend to be less unionized, the smaller and ones. And do you feel this rule, or do you predict that this rule extends the geographical footprint of where contractors would need to use union labor? Yes, yes, because especially if reducing it to the 30% threshold for setting the prevailing wage is more than likely going to lean on CBAs, collective bargaining agreements, to set those union rates, especially in the rural areas, because that's where they have a, a really hard time setting prevailing wages because of lack of participation in the surveys. 
Right. So I guess what I'm getting at is could this favor the large contracting firms over the small ones in terms of winning contracts, do you think? Yes. Yes. And there's also another wrinkle in it to where uh, in the rural areas to where they have a difficulty setting the rates, the DOL in this rule is giving themselves permission to use urban rates uh, when they don't have enough data. So obviously, when you think about that, it's going to use urban rates in rural areas. It's going to favor the larger contractors that can bring their workers in from those urban areas. So if a state then can convince the government to fund a bridge under the infrastructure bill, for example, that is somewhere out in the country that's covering a river gorge, and that bridge was first put in in 1930, and it's time to replace it, there's lots of bridges like that. There is no city nearby, then there's no prevailing wage if, there's, if that's the only construction project in a 40-mile radius. I'm making these numbers up. But mm-hmm. then if a city is 60 miles away or 100 miles away, it could be that that's the prevailing wage that would apply to that remote bridge. Yes, that's what the Department of Labor has given themselves the ability to do. And as you can see, it could impact the ability to bring people in. They would have to bring them in from those urban areas. It would affect the local workers, the local supply. Right. So if you could find local workers, then that would be good for them. Sure. If you could, but that's the difficulty we're having right now is finding the workers, and they tend to go to where the work is. Right. So if the work is in the cities, then what do contractors do out in the country? Do they bring people in and house them or what? How does that work? They typically bring them in, and uh, they don't specifically house them. They usually uh, use per diems to kind of pay for their housing, uh, and, and kind of it's also utilization to get them to those areas. Yeah, again, this is what you're we're tackling the uh, workforce shortage with more and more money. Yeah, well, it sounds like a good place to open a Motel 6 and a bar with a swinging <laughs> pair of doors. <laughs> oh, yeah. Claiborne Guy is Director of Employment Policy and Practices at the Associated General Contractors of America. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the rule and the AGC reaction at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. 
And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And, that, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that. But I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. 
you know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, Mm -hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother, 
would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.